Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to We Have Ways Family Stories, our weekly show in which you, the listeners, tell us what happened to your family members during the Second World War. These stories can be anything from daring raids behind enemy lines to evacuees and their quirky tales of country life. Here's today's section, read by me, Al Murray, and my co-host, James Holland. releasing this episode on Mother's Day. I hope you didn't forget. So where better to start than with this story from Francis Mullen of Hornchurch, Essex. I'd like to share the story of Audrey, my mother-in-law, who we sadly lost last April. She was an evacuee from Bethnal Green in London. Audrey, aged six, and her sister Joyce, 11, were sent by train from London early in September 1939 to Polstead in Suffolk, where they were paraded on the village green to await selection by the local people. A rich spinster took them in, and an interesting country life ensued with fresh homegrown fruit and vegetables and warm cow's milk to drink. Their guardian was the church organist, and at church services it became Audrey's job to keep pumping the bellows of the wheezing organ. It was an enjoyable and healthy life in the country, but Audrey and Joyce missed their East End family and friends. So one morning, instead of their lengthy walk to school, they decided to walk home. Polstead is on the Suffolk-Essex border, 67 miles from London's Bethnal Green. The girls had no map, no plans, and of course no sat-nav in those days. But Joyce had a general sense of which direction to head, and the girls had the desire to see their mum and dad. The going was slow, with Joyce having to stop and regularly rub Audrey's sore feet, as they were shod in Wellington boots, which were far too big for her and chafed her feet. They reached Mark's Tay, just outside Colchester, Essex, having walked almost 15 miles. A lorry pulled up and asked where the girls were going. London, mister, came the innocent reply. He offered them a lift and once on board, he took them to the local police station. With no real harm done, they were returned to Polstead. Their guardian later went on to serve with the Red Cross and the girls were billeted with another family before being split up, but close by. Then things changed as their father was disabled and wheelchair-bound living in a small flat and with the threat of the Blitz, he could not easily be taken to an air raid shelter. So both mum and dad were evacuated too, and they were all billeted on a large farm. A happy few years followed, with Audrey describing a village life of dancing round the Maypole and going on cycle rides visiting the beautiful Suffolk villages of Kersey, Lavenham and Boxford. This happy idyll was tinged with sadness in March 1943, when news filtered through of the disaster at Bethnal Green tube station. During the confusion of an air raid alert and the noise of the local anti-aircraft guns, a panicked crowd tried to get into the underground shelter. 173 people were crushed to death, including 62 children, some of whom Joyce and Audrey would have known. Audrey spoke of the Land Girls, 
and Italian POWs who worked the land, and meeting the young American airmen from the USAAF bases, who handed out candy and loved village life and a chance to go to the dances. She kept in touch with the family she was billeted with and in later years took her own family back and always had a great love and knowledge of Suffolk and never missed an opportunity to visit. They were the closest of sisters for their entire lives and spoke every day. Joyce died in November 2019 and Audrey shortly after in April last year. A generation passed. Francis Mullen I'm going to read a report now, if I may, written by Lieutenant David Alderson of A Squadron, the Sherwood Rangers. He wrote this report on September the 22nd, 1944, a day after the extraordinary events he describes. I was leading my troop near Beek, only 1,000 yards from the German border, hoping to be the first British tank into Germany, when I was hit by a German 75mm auto-tank gun at short range. The tank burst into flames in the turret, giving us only a few seconds to get out. The shell went through the driver, killing him instantly, and shattered my radio operator's legs in the turret. My co-driver got shrapnel in the back, and my gunner was the first to bail out. The tank still went on down the road about 20 miles an hour, yet we all managed to jump off, including the radio operator with both legs broken. I was perfectly all right, but we were machine-gunned as we were jumping off and rockets and mortars started dropping. Luckily, we had a deep ditch to hide in, because the tank turned into the same ditch just ahead of us, and all the ammo kept going off with the heat of the fire, and blew the turret off. Shrapnel from the exploding ammo kept whizzing past, so I carried the radio operator and co-driver further down the ditch, and tried to bandage the co-driver's broken knees with the only two field dressings I could find. He showed great courage, and kept calling me Skip, my nickname by the crew. Then after waiting for ages for my gunner to return with a medical orderly, I ran back to our lines myself and returned with two American Red Cross orderlies carrying a wicker chair. After bandaging them up, they carried the crew in the chair under fire as though on a Wings for Victory parade, straight down the road as it was quicker than going through the trees. They got them back in a flying jeep with my gunner, who we found in the end at 60 miles an hour, me sitting on the bonnet. My famous Sergeant Dring, got the gun that got me. He was right behind me, and both three shots were fired at him. They all missed, and he reversed, firing round the corner from which we came. He asked me why I took so long to jump off the tank. I suggested he try at 20 miles an hour. The CO wants me to rest, but I will not, as it's best to get back in a tank as soon as possible after a brew-up, while one's nerve is still good. The reason for the brew-up is not my fault. The road was reported clear at that point by the Americans, and apparently a jerry in American uniform waved me on along that straight road. I actually touched my cap to him as I passed, when he ran into the wood that was a signal for the gun to fire. Many Germans here are in civvies, trying to get back into Germany. What an experience! I can only say how proud and impressed I am with the Americans with us. They go out on their own initiative, looking for trouble and get it. They sent a stalking patrol up to the gun that got me as soon as Sergeant Dring had shelled it a bit to see if it was still there. They cycle about carrying bazookas and tear through enemy lines in jeeps at 70 to 80 miles an hour. I have decided my nerves are okay. Things are sticky, but reinforcements are pouring in by air. We are moving again soon, 
and I hope my new tank fares better. The extraordinary thing is, he was only 20 years old at this point. This one's from Chris Brown about his mum, Marie Turner, later Brown. Marie Turner was born in 1923 in Chorley, Lancashire. Her dad, Bill, fought in the First World War as an airman and later had a job as a cotton mill manager. In the Great Recession, the mill closed and the family were plunged into extreme poverty. Life was very tough for Marie and her little sister, Pat. Their parents struggled with physical and mental illness and both died young. When the war began, Marie saw an opportunity to escape and she became an early radar operator on the south coast. Marie greatly enjoyed her time in the army, immersed in her tight-knit group within the ATS and with many social opportunities previously denied to her by both poverty and a strict Catholic upbringing. She relished the challenge involved in the developing radar science and spent time working on the innovative research taking place in Dorset. As the build-up to the Normandy invasion began, Marie was enjoying a relationship with a Dutch soldier. With D-Day lockdown imposed before the invasion, they knew they might not have another opportunity to be together, so they grabbed the last chance. An alert was sounded as the Luftwaffe crossed the channel and it was very obvious Marie was not at her post. She faced a potentially serious charge of desertion in the face of the enemy, but luckily for Marie the circumstances were recognised. She was not punished. It probably helped that her role as a radar operator was greatly valued. She never saw her boyfriend again. He landed in Normandy and they lost contact. Marie herself arrived in Normandy a few days after D-Day, landing on the newly built Mulberry Harbour off Aramanche with her radar unit. They were attached to 30 Corps to help provide air defence of the Allied forces. Soon after, her unit was in an advanced position and they'd set up their equipment in the shelter of a copse. A German counter-attack left them behind enemy lines. Marie's unit only had one armed soldier with them as they were not allowed to carry guns. They kept their heads down and waited for the Allies to push the Germans back before they came out of that wood. After the war, Mum asked if she was entitled to a France and Germany star medal. She was denied and told that no women were on the front line, and therefore she did not qualify. As the war progressed, Marie was assigned to the HQ of 30 Corps, and she helped with rebuilding local services and assisting refugees. Immediately after liberation, Marie was in Antwerp, and long after the war she kept in touch with some of the local families she was billeted with. She always talked warmly of the welcome and friendship she was afforded. At the liberation of Belson, Marie was part of the team which went in to help the survivors. This left an indelible scar on her memory. But there were happier times too, and we know through brief diary entries that she enjoyed putting on concert parties, and we have a number of photographs of her with various handsome young men. Marie spent time in Berlin and recalled the absolute devastation of the city. Her organisational skills were again utilised in re-establishing services and the denazification programmes. She was demobbed in late 1946 and returned to the UK where she worked for the Ministry of Defence. A few years later she met and married Trevor, a nuclear chemist. Marie never forgot the hardship she had lived through and which she saw during and after the war. She wanted to do something about it. Later, as a mother of three children, she gained a degree from the London School of Economics in Sociology and Social Policy and she worked as a researcher with Professor Peter Townsend on his groundbreaking study, Poverty in the UK. Marie was part of the team which founded the Low Pay Unit, specialising in the plight of agricultural workers, home-working women and providing research and informing national policy. This work showed politicians and planners what was really happening to people living in poverty in the UK and the terrible effects this had on people's education, health and life chances, and it led to policy change in government. Later she became an inspirational teacher of social policy. 
1983, she died from chronic lung disease, caused by a combination of working in a cotton mill from the age of 14, gas training in the army, and, of course, the tobacco addiction many succumbed to in those days. Also, in May 1983, a man arrived in Chorley, hoping to find his wartime friend. After almost 40 years, he was two weeks too late. Chris Brown. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This one's from Andy Fieldhouse. Dear James and Al, thank you for the fascinating podcast episodes that I look forward to hearing every week. Here's my story. In the mid-1990s, I worked for a wine merchant in London and was conducting a tasting at a club in Pall Mall which my father and his friend Bill attended, along with Bill's father-in-law. He was a tall, elderly gentleman, impeccably turned out in a tweed jacket and regimental tie. I offered him some champagne to try, which he politely refused, to which I replied in surprise, how come you don't like champagne? No, love the stuff, dear boy, came his reply. I just haven't touched a drop since 1945. Intrigued, I asked him, how come? And this was his story. He'd been in the army chasing the Germans out of France after D-Day. As they were advancing, they were sending out foraging parties to collect useful things, things like petrol and food. His commanding officer told him to take a patrol to collect some lorries the retreating Germans had left behind. He and some men went in search of the lorries, which they duly found. They flipped the canvas up and discovered they were stuffed to the roof with cases of looted French champagne. There were about 5,000 cases all told, 60,000 bottles. He and a sergeant took the lorries back to HQ and explained to the commanding officer what was in them. 
as the lorries weren't loaded with petrol, ammunition, food or anything else deemed useful, the CEO told them they could do what they wanted with their find. Bill's father-in-law agreed to split the cargo equally with his sergeant, and so the sergeant's and officer's messes were each gifted 2,500 cases of champagne. As I stared at Bill's father-in-law, he looked wistfully into the distance and said, Do you know, there's nothing quite like champagne out of a tin cup at dawn. He said they drank the lot during the rest of the war. At times, finding themselves out of fresh water, they were brushing their teeth in the stuff. I wonder if one can ever have too much champagne. But whatever his reason, he hadn't touched a drop since. All the best, Andy Fieldhouse. This one's from Fabian Martens, a 25-year-old Dutch listener. Dear Alan James, this is not a story of my own family, but something amazing that I suspect only I know about. As an engineer in the Merchant Navy and a history lover, I bought an antique ditty box from the UK. A ditty box is a container for a sailor's personal belongings, everything from his shaving knife to his photos and letters from loved ones. My newly acquired ditty box had a name engraved on it, W.P. Baskerville, and I began to research the name in combination with the Royal Navy on the internet. Eventually, I found him on the Plymouth Naval Memorial. It belonged to Walter Philip Baskerville, Stoker, First Class. From there, I continued my search in the Digital National Archive and discovered his extraordinary service records. Walter was born in Sulcombe, Devon in 1893, working as a farm labourer before joining the Royal Navy in 1912, aged 19. He joined the battlecruiser HMS Lion in 1913 and served the entire First World War on a vessel that saw some of the most heavy fighting in naval history. Built in 1910, this fast ship of 700 feet was capable of doing 28 knots, giving even modern warships a run for their money. She first saw action at the Battle of Heligoland Bight, sinking the light cruiser Köln. She then served as Vice Admiral Beatty's flagship at the battles of Doggerbank and Jutland, where she received a direct hit to a turret causing a raging fire. I can only imagine what it must have been like for Walter down in the engine room, while tons of explosives were flying through the sky above, coming down like thunderbursts. I know myself how terrifying the sound of bending and tearing metal is, the smell of burning paint and metal caused by an engine room fire. Walter had to experience these in wartime while keeping the vessel going, along with his mates in the bowels of the ship. After the war, he stayed with the Navy before finally leaving in 1934. But his story does not end here. On the eve of the Second World War, he joined the aircraft carrier HMS Courageous. On the 3rd of September, Courageous went on an anti-submarine patrol as part of a hunter-killer group with four destroyers. Two weeks later, off the coast of Ireland, she was stalked for more than two hours by U-29, while two of her destroyers were helping a merchant vessel in distress. She turned against the wind to launch her planes, putting her in the direct line of sight of the U-boat. The U-boat fired three torpedoes, two striking courageous in her port side, cutting all electrical power and making her capsize. She sank within 20 minutes, together with 519 of her crew, including the captain and Walter. U-29 managed to escape despite being chased by the two destroyers for hours. Courageous was the first British warship to be sunk by the Germans and was a great propaganda tool for the Kriegsmarine. It gives me the chills to think of how Walter must have met his end. I like to think the ditty box I have in my possession was with him during those early days on the Lion, and that after a long battle he opened it and would have seen the face of a loved one before taking a well-deserved rest. 
I wonder if he has any family left. It baffles me that such a piece of personal history managed to find its way into my hands. If anybody could help me find any relative or more information, please get in touch. May he rest in peace. Yours sincerely, Fabian Martens. Ian Smith wrote to us to share his mum's story. In October 1944, mum was nine years old and living in Waltham Cross, North London. One night she woke suddenly and, as she tells it, knew that something was very wrong. She got out of bed and roused her parents, my grandparents, plus her younger brother and a family friend who was staying with them. She somehow persuaded them all to go downstairs and to get into the Morrison shelter, a sort of reinforced dining table. Her father left the shelter to check something, and at this point a V1 landed in the road directly in front of the house. My grandfather was killed instantly, as were several others in the street. Remarkably, my mother and the others were more or less unharmed, and were dug out of the wreckage by the local civil defence volunteers. My existence is even more contingent than it first appears. If that V1 had landed a few metres closer, my mother would have been killed too but had it landed a bit further away, then I wouldn't have been born either, as my grandmother remarried after the war, and it was through her new stepfather that my mother met my father. So the fact that I am here to share this story relies on that doodle bug landing precisely where it did, in Ruven Avenue, that night in October 1944. All of the vagaries of fueling and wind and flak notwithstanding. Recently, I found my grandfather's grave recorded on the CWGC website. Once this Covid malarkey is done and dusted, I'll pay my respects to the grandfather I never met and whose random death was necessary for my birth. Mum is now a feisty 86-year-old and has just had a second Covid jab, so feels invincible. She says, The bloody Luftwaffe couldn't get me, so this virus has got no chance. Keep up the excellent work. Ian. We'll finish today with a brief story sent in by 11-year-old Zan Kinnear. Dear James and Al, I'm a big fan of the podcast. This is my great-grandfather's story, whom I am named after. My great-grandfather was born in the state of Pomerania in Poland in 1923. When the Nazis invaded in 1939, he was forced to leave his home for fear of being sent to a labour camp. He set out for France, crossing most of Europe, only to be captured and set to work on the land. He then escaped... He used to tell a story of hiding in a haystack for two days to escape the Germans. He then managed to make it to the Pyrenees, where he met a group of refugees, and they crossed the mountains in the middle of the night. When he arrived in Spain, it was plain sailing, arriving in Gibraltar shortly after, before he boarded a ship bound for England. Next, he headed to Scotland, where the Free Polish Army was massing, and he enlisted in the 1st Polish Armoured Division. After he completed his training, he was assigned to 8B Gunners, and shipped off to France to serve in the closing weeks of the Battle of Normandy. Then he was sent into Belgium, where he was wounded by shrapnel in the legs in one of the opening battles of the campaign. My grandmother told a story of how the shrapnel used to appear at the surface of his leg from time to time when she was a child. Cheerio, or as they say in Poland, pa, from Zan, age 11. 
Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like your family story considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com, making the subject of your email family stories. Or you can post it on our member site under the Family Stories tab. Remember, it's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening and cheerio.